Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Broncos. In this episode, we speak with Tobias Fisher, co-founder and CEO of Wagely, an earned wage access fintech that helps employees access their wages before payday. We hear about Toby's journey as a student in Germany, learning about Southeast Asia's opportunity for financial inclusion from afar to venturing to the region himself and paving the way for new credit models through his work at several startups. Toby also gives us a detailed understanding of the earned wage access model and employee financial health. Wagely is an earned wage access fintech that partners with employers to advance the salary payment of their employees. They raised their seed round in June of 2021, and you can learn more about them by visiting wagely.app. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform. And we are very happy to collaborate with the Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the Green Room brings to you as a, a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, master classes that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Toby, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, Amrita, for having me. Very excited to be on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so let's, let's jump right in. You've seemed really interested in Southeast Asia for a really long time. And I recall that when we we first spoke a couple of years ago, you were telling me that you wrote your university thesis on P2P lending in Southeast Asia. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think my passion for Southeast Asia has, uh, has really come a long way. Um, so I started essentially my career in, in Germany, um, working in the insurance industry, and then um, always wanted to live overseas and then had a really strong interest in, in, in Southeast Asia. Essentially then did my study abroad in, in Southeast Asia because very early on realized that um, Asia is really on track to be, to on, on track to top um, 50 of global uh, GDP by 2020, 40. Um, and drive about 40% of world's uh, consumption. So I was always really excited about coming to Southeast Asia, spent about um, a year here in Singapore, um, doing my study abroad program and then working for Allianz for a short period of time. And then I moved back to um, Germany to essentially finish my studies. And during that period of time was contacted by Rocket Internet um, to join, I guess the first 
sort of fintech company in uh, in Europe, and um, that was essentially um, copycat of of Lending Club back then, and then um, had sort of the opportunity to um, see peer to peer lending uh, firsthand, uh, being operator on the, on the one hand, but also was really interested in um, the theoretical aspect of peer to peer lending, and then um, spent a lot of time thinking about the model um, on my day to day work. Um, on, on how to scale it and then um, really develop the passion about P2P lending um, and, and wanted to explore how this could potentially uh, provide um, more access to consumer credit for low and middle income workers in, in Southeast Asia and then um, married, I guess, my day-to-day -day job with my academic life um, and I wrote my thesis on P2P lending in Southeast Asia in 2013. Got it. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thesis? as? Someone who also wrote, you know, my master's thesis, I actually wrote it on quantifying and measuring financial health, but it's one of those things that kind of has driven a lot of my career choices since then. So I feel like in many ways, writing a thesis, spending so much time thinking about a specific area really drives your decision making. So can you tell us a little bit about the thesis itself? Yeah, absolutely. So um I definitely resonate with this and um, I, I definitely see a lot of similarities um, in, in my career path as well. I think that's definitely had a major impact on, on my professional career as well. Um, so I essentially um, researched on um, the topic whether P2P lending can be a viable alternative to tra traditional consumer credit, um, looking at information asymmetries, um, disinformation disintermediation uh, theories in, in, in Southeast Asia, and I guess how P2P lending could break down ultimately the, the high cost of credit for a lot of low and middle income workers and essentially embed itself as a viable alternative for uh, consumer credit. And I think one of the um, interesting findings uh, from, from my um, academic research was that I, I do see the significant potential that peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending has, in particular in, in Southeast Asia, in terms of being able to disintermediate traditional ways of consumer credit, in terms of being able to reduce costs of underwriting in, in, in order to eventually then also um, reduce the cost of credit to low and middle income workers. Um, so um, I think it was in 2013, 14, probably one of the first academic researches that was done on P2P lending in, in, in Southeast Asia. And um, yeah, has definitely driven a lot of um, my past um, career choices, um, working for Rocket Internet for about two years and then moving to Southeast Asia back in 2015. And then also again, uh, joining a P2P lending company called Capital Match. Um, where we've raised our Series B round from B Capital. Um, and um, I think if we're looking at P2P lending now as it stands in Southeast Asia, I think we've definitely seen uh, massive successes across industries uh, with players across the region. So um, definitely think that um, one of my early findings in 2013-14 in, in of P2P lending being a viable alternative has, has definitely uh, seen its showcases across industries streets and geographies. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, before you came to Southeast Asia, you, know, you mentioned um, being picked up by Rocket Internet and working at, I think, a company with Ladico, season one of the podcast, co-founder and CEO of Stashaway. He was also from the Rocket Internet family and, you know, shared a little bit about his experience. 
Maybe before we get to Southeast Asia, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience at Lendico, like a lending club type platform? How did that influence your decision to then move to Singapore? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. So I think um, Rocket um, has this amazing capabilities of giving you tools to, to, to build amazing businesses. Um, I think the, the experiences that I've gotten at, uh, at Rocket Internet um, working in the headquarter in Berlin has, has really equipped, I guess, myself with a lot of entrepreneurial spirit, as well as the, the tool set across different um, categories and, um, I guess, ventures uh, to really understand what it takes um, to, to build venture. Um, I had the opportunity to, to look into product, institutional fundraising, marketing operations, um, the expansion team, etc. So I've really gotten a very good 360 degree view on what it takes to build ventures. And that has really equipped me, I guess, and, and set me um, for, I guess, my entrepreneurial uh, journey going forward. Um, I think for me, the, the opportunity to come back to Singapore was mainly driven by the fact that um, I, I saw the opportunities that Southeast Asia offers, um, given its large mobile users, um, GDP growth um, over the last couple of years, and, and it's just sheer massive population. Um, I think if we're looking at countries like Indonesia, 260 million people alone, I, I think these are countries that I really wanted to participate in. Um, I've also been a little bit more bearish on economic growth in, in Europe and, and really wanted to participate in more high growth uh, countries um, where there's a lot of opportunities. And, and I think that in, in Southeast Asia, there's still a lack of good talent, um, good quality founders. So, so I wanted to set myself up here, um, having um, gotten a lot of experience in terms of venture building and a lot of uh, sector expertise in terms of fintech financial services and, and then got the opportunity to join um, or come back to Singapore and then um, started to, to I guess, um, yeah, build my second um, second step professional career back here in Singapore. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. And I do think you see so many great entrepreneurs coming out of Rocket Internet and I guess yourself included. So that's that seems like it was a really great learning opportunity for everyone that kind of goes through that. Talking about, you know, coming to Singapore, you, you mentioned you joined Capital Match and then I also at a company called Impact Credit Solutions. Capital Match and Impact Credit Solutions are both dealing a little bit more with the business side, small businesses, SMEs. How do you individuals versus SMEs? Like what are like the major differences and kind of drew you to the SME side? Yeah, um, I think um, when, when I was working for, for Lendico, Lendico was essentially um, very much on the consumer side. Um, so consumer focused uh, P2P lending companies, similar like Lending Club. Um, I definitely wanted to see the SME side as well. Um, really understanding um, business credit as well. Um, and then I guess with impact credit solutions later on, it, it really rounded, I guess, my whole experience. Um, having been on the originator side, focusing on consumer, focusing on, focusing on businesses, and then switching sides at the table to towards the institutional investor side um, that I had a lot of experience dealing with um, when I was at Lendico or when I was even um, at Capital Match um, leading equity fundraising as well as debt fundraising. Um, so really wanted to understand 
the, every aspect of, of the business from the originator side and um, from the institutional investor side as well. I think if we look at the main differences in terms of um, consumer as well as SMEs, it's very clear underwriting is very different in, in terms of consumer versus SME. Um, the way loans are originated is also fundamentally different um, than uh, customer acquisition is, is, is fundamentally different between consumer and SME. So um, it has got me really good um, experience in terms of understanding both sides of the businesses. And then um, I guess one of the key differences why I wanted to see that shift into the SME business as well is I wanted to see how we can scale faster because consumer tickets relatively smaller sized. Um, frequency is, is a lot higher. Um, durations typically also shorter. So wanted to take um, a little bit different view in terms of seeing how we can build a larger portfolio. Um, when I left Capital Match, we had a, originated about 100 million US dollars in, in terms of loans. Um, but then um, I guess the next immediate step um, for me after closing the Series B with Capital Match was to, to move on um, to essentially grab uh, which is then also where where we cross path mm -hmm. um, because for for me I had then done peer to peer lending uh, with capital uh, sorry with um, with Lendico had done it two years with with Capital Match but then really wanted to take the next stage and um, always been following very innovative models across um, the U S across Europe and um, we we saw the emergence of Square Amazon all of a sudden becoming the largest lending platforms. So historically, non-financial services businesses moving into financial services. And um, I thought to myself, who's gonna be the Amazon of lending? And I think it was pretty clear that it's only gonna be um, either Grab or Gojek in, in Southeast Asia, and um, then got the opportunity to meet some, some of the Grab founders and then um, said like, we, we need to build a financial services business on, on top of the transportation business. And then um, got the opportunity to meet Jason Thompson and um, yeah, then eventually become became the first employee of Brett Financial. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. The foresight that you had to say, okay, what's the what's gonna be the Amazon of Southeast Asia and you know, how can we how can you get on the embedded finance trade before anybody else? I think that's really, really uh, incredible foresight. And you, as you, as you said, you were part of the team that started the lending services at Grab through meeting the team. And that was a really new model in, in Southeast Asia at that time. I think this is back in must be 2017, 2018. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced in setting up an embedded finance business at Grab? I think even though it was a very new business and um even I think this term of embedded finance didn't really exist in, in 2017. But I think ultimately for me, it was still the day-to-day -day business of how can we provide low-cost consumer credit or SME credit to people that historically have been excluded or financially underserved by the traditional players, right? So for me, the day-to-day -day business was still essentially the same. It was just um, new ways of origination um, using the existing ecosystem that Grab had, as well as the opportunity to really control income flow of drivers, merchants, 
as well as passengers, right? So I think that was really the unique opportunity. And I think that's ultimately also the reason why Amazon became so big as it is today in terms of its financial services business. Um, I think if we look at some of the biggest challenges of us launching this across Southeast Asia is obviously the lack of regulation that exists across markets, right? Um, a lot of the innovative products that we have built um, were in the space where sometimes even traditional consumer credit regulation didn't exist in, in some of the countries that we were working at. Second is um, localization was one of the key items that we had to focus on. Um, localization, not only in terms of like changing products, um, marketing material, or even go-to-market strategy in terms of um, going into Malaysia, going into Thailand, but really thinking about like how we delivering a product in a particular region in a particular country to a particular segment right so the idea of hyperlocalization in these markets was really key for us to drive product and and adoption um as well as scale right so and then of course in 2017 grab historically being a transportation company there was a lot of change management that also had to be done within grab in terms of making uh, your colleagues understand why Grab now becomes financial services and why this is such a huge opportunity for, for the firm, right? So I think that would probably be the three challenges that that were basically there from, from day one. But I think if we, if we look at where Grab is today, I think it's been um, managed um, exceptionally well over the past uh, couple of years. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Toby. It's, um... I love hearing this because, you know, for, for our listeners, I work at Grab and basically my job is only possible because of Toby. And so big thank you to you. I don't even know if I'd be in the region had Grab Financial not been born. And so I owe a lot of that to you. Um, and it is an incredible, in an incredible spot today, um, with the, what we've been able to do for our drivers, merchants, and passengers. But enough about Grab. We want to talk today wagely, so let's turn our attention there and talk about earned wage access, which is yet another alternative credit model, you know, different from traditional finance. Um, so let's let's just jump right into it. Why did you decide to start wagely, and did COVID have anything to do with it? Because I realize that you started right at the beginning of COVID last year. Yeah, which was probably one of the best and worst decision ever to to start a business during this period of time. Um, we've definitely seen ups, uh, ups and downs, but ultimately, I think uh, we've seen also major successes if we look at the last 14 months. So um, just quickly about Wagely. So um, Wagely is, is essentially the, the leading financial wellness platform in Indonesia offering earned wage access to low and middle income workers. So we work as a B2B2C company. Um, we've now partnered with about 50 plus employers across um, Indonesia. Most of them are um, large national champions, listed businesses or um, state-owned enterprises in Indonesia where their employees have the opportunity to get real-time access to their wages um, so that they don't need to rely on any predatory lending platforms whenever unexpected um, expenses happen. One of the biggest problems in Indonesia is that people typically don't have savings. And whenever there's an unexpected expense of like 
only 40, 50 US dollars, people often are struggling because they can't borrow from banks. They don't, their friends and family typically don't have savings. So they often end up with predatory lending platforms, which obviously has a massive impact of their financial health. And, and you would know this because you, you wrote your thesis on, on financial health and, and, and measuring this. Um, so the problem of employee financial stress um, on the other hand, it's costing businesses millions of dollars every year in terms of higher turnover, lower productivity, um, higher healthcare costs, um, a lot more absenteeism. And then what's very common in Indonesia is that a lot of businesses are providing employee loans of their own balance sheet called Caspon, um, which of course is good for the employee, but it's also detrimental to the business because it locks up a lot of working capital and um, it takes a lot of administrative work on the HR team to, to really manage this. So with Waitree, we're essentially removing this and, and providing the employees a financial lifeline when, whenever there's unexpected expenses um, at zero cost to the business. And um, yeah, so, so far it's been really a tremendous journey, um, especially um, during COVID-19. I think it's a, it's a very timely solution to really um, help low and middle income workers whenever they're struggling, um, especially over the last um, two, three months with the re-emergence of um, COVID-19 and um, significantly higher infection rates in Indonesia. We've seen that um, employees are really accessing um, wagely also to cover uh, medical bills, unexpected expenses, um, whether that's uh, really like, um, medicine, whether it's um, oxygen uh, tanks that they need to buy, which they often don't have savings for. So it's a very timely solution um, for businesses to implement this to their employees. And so instead of increasing salaries, they can just provide the flexibility. And ultimately, I think if we look at earned wage access, it's very similar to the product that I developed when, when I was at Grab in 2017. It's essentially just an income smoothing solution. Um, and I mean, you, you know this because you're running the driver lending program now, but um, um, I think the product that we had built then was just a driver incentive advance. Drivers would be able to get access to the incentives up front. And um, if you look at WHD and what we're doing today, this is very similar. Um, essentially, what we do is we help employees get real-time access to their salary so that they don't need to rely on predatory lending platforms and, and businesses, on the other hand, then benefit from um, lower turnover, higher productivity, um, lower healthcare costs, um, less employee fraud or uh, employee theft and, and lower employee loans on, on their own balance sheet. So it's a great solution. Um, and um, we see that work is changing um, and fundamentally we believe that not only workplaces are changing, locations are changing, but the way we access our pay is also changing. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, I guess I should also say Grab is no longer actually doing the incentive advance program. It's doing, focusing strictly on like cash loans and buy now, pay later. These days when, when you guys first came up with it and I can see how it directly translates into, you know, what you're doing at Wagely. But for those who may be a little bit less familiar with the space, can you tell us what's like the difference between earned wage access and salary financing? They're a little bit different. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, the difference between earned wage access and, and I'm very particular about the term earned wage access or not early wage access or um, salary advance um, is, is essentially that earned wage access gives employees access to their earned wages at any point in time throughout the month. Um, so it's not a salary advance where an employee gets financing for a service that the employee is delivering in the future, but it's merely giving employees access to what they've already worked for. Um, whereas a salary advance or salary financing, salary loans is basically the ability for employees to take out loans on the back of their monthly regular income, which is typically a longer term installment loan um, over a period of three or six months, which in, in its essence is a loan, is an advance on, on the future salary that the employee receives. So EWA or earned wage access in essence um, is not a loan, um, is not an advancement, doesn't create any debenture or any debt on the employee side, but it only is a cash flow timing solution where the employees Get, gets real-time access um, to his or her salary at any point in time throughout the month. Got it, got it. And so what made you decide to focus really on the earned wage access side and not salary finance? Like, why would you pick one or the other? Yeah, so so the reason why we wanted to focus on earned wage access is, is, is essentially that uh, prior to me founding Wagely, um, I used to run a credit fund um, together with my co-founders at Impact Credit Solutions. And we always wanted to invest in consumer credit, but never could get really comfortable with the underlying rates that are being charged to consumers, given the high credit risk, given the difficulty of underwriting in Indonesia. And, um, and that's essentially why I was always looking for more sustainable, more responsible alternatives uh, to, I guess, digital consumer credit that was in, in unfortunately a lot of cases sometimes predatory. Um, so, so that's why we wanted to focus on giving institutional investors the opportunity to participate in consumer credit at the lowest possible consumer credit risk. Um, the beauty of the EWA model is that we are providing very low cost credit to consumers, but essentially running the risk of their employers um, mm -hmm. because the, the EWA deduction is happening at the end of the month and the employers deducting on behalf of us before um, the employers paying out the salary. So, so that's why we wanted to focus on earned wage access first um, as the lowest um, hanging fruit. Um, mm -hmm. And then ultimately also to provide the most affordable, most responsible alternative to a predatory lending platform in Indonesia. So, so that was really the reason why we wanted to focus on EWA first. And I do believe that salary loans or salary financing is very complementary to our business because ultimately what we don't want is that if there's a larger expense, for example, flooding in Indonesia or mm -hmm which requires home renovation, we don't want the employee to then still go to a predatory lending platform and, and then eventually still end up in this vicious cycle of debt. So I think ultimately, um, salary loans is very complementary to our business model um, as well, because what we're really building is a holistic financial 
wellness platform that helps employees holistically in terms of managing their financial well-being and financial health. Got it. Yeah, I, I think that's it's really innovative to say, okay, instead of you bearing the risk or the risk being solely based on the, the recipient of the loan, you've actually transferred uh, the risk to the employer. And that obviously is much lower risk. Exactly. Really, a really innovative model. So if that's the case, then uh, is it, it seems relatively easy to get your money back, really easy to keep the risk low, but how do you make money in this model? Are you charging a fee to consumers? Are you charging a fee to the employer? What's, what's your model here? Yeah, so we have a hybrid model. Um, so um, in, in the sense that um, traditional, we, we're, we're charging the employee a very small fee of about $2.50 uh, per, per access. Um, so it's a flat fee, which is great in Indonesia. It's also fully Sharia compliant. And in some cases, um, the employers are actually paying for the fee on behalf of the employee. Um, because a lot of employers have realized that this is a great benefit, especially during this period of time, the cost of increasing salary across the whole workforce is significantly higher as compared to giving employees flexibility through an earned wage access program, um, which is often um, helping a lot more in, um, as compared to just simply increasing um, salaries. So um, for British American Tobacco, for example, as one of our clients is paying 50% uh, of uh, the employees' uh, transaction fees, um, which is great to see. And I think there's, over time, there's a lot more that we could do um, to really help employees um, even get this service for free. Yeah, that's amazing, that's amazing. And, and as an employee, the value proposition, because it's a short-term loan, it's a, well, a short-term short -term financial service, and it's probably a smaller amount than they could get with other peer-to-peer -peer lending or other consumer finance products. Um, what's the value proposition for an employee? Why would they want a product that gives them just access early? Yeah, so um, I think there's, there's um, different dimensions to um, why, why they would want it. So, so first and foremost, um, there's a lot of trust that the employee has with the employers. So often our program is an employer sponsored or endorsed program. So naturally the employee trusts the platform a lot more. So I think that's one. Second is uh, for the employee is really about speed, convenience, as well as price, right? So in terms of speed, we are paying out instantly into any bank account in Indonesia. So if an employee needs to access his funds on a Saturday because there's an unexpected medical bill or he needs, someone in the family has gotten sick, the employee receives his salary instantly in a few seconds. Um, so it's very, very fast. Second is, is super convenient because the employee throughout the month can track his wages so he can use it as a budgeting and planning tool. Um, we also provide a lot of financial education. So it's, it's convenience to access your salary at literally three clicks through the app. Um, so, and then the third thing is essentially pricing, because if you look at pricing um, across, I guess, different consumer credit platforms in Indonesia, um, we are probably one of the lowest um, and most affordable platforms in Indonesia to really get access to consumer credit. If you, if you compare 
um, I guess rates with with other lending platforms we're, we're charging a fraction of um, of what other other lending platforms are charging in, in this space um, and then often what we also realize that unexpected expenses typically are just 30 or 40 US dollars or the um, equivalent in, in rupiah um, and a lot of lending platforms do not provide that small amount of access, right? Um, which often creates another problem on the employee side to, of overborrowing as well, right? They get a lot more money than they actually need. Um, and then they often spend it um, unwisely. So there's these three aspects, I think, which is um, the value proposition to the employee. Um, again, it's speed, uh, convenience, as well as the pricing. Got it. And I think, you know, you, you've also talked about um, financial well-being being a major part of the value proposition. And how does Wagely define financial well-being? And yeah, so, so the way we're defining financial well-being is, is basically um, based on a framework that we have embedded in, into our system. So um, we're basically scoring every employee based on their financial well-being. Um, across four different categories, um, spending, borrowing, planning, um, as well as budgeting. Um, across those four categories, we assign a score to every employee, uh, which basically then um, could end up in three different categories, which is financially vulnerable, coping, as well as financially healthy. So we measure financial health on an ongoing basis, which gives us great insights into the financial health of particular workforce, industries, sectors, and, and geographies. And then we're providing this also back to the employer uh, for the employer to then take um, actions and, and um, recommendations to improve the financial health of employees. Um, I think that's what we're doing in terms of uh, measurement. But then I guess in terms of the value proposition of our platform to employers as well as employees is much more than this. Um, because we know that financial health starts with giving employees the most affordable, most responsible alternative to predatory lending platforms. I think that's the first step towards creating financial well-being. The second step and probably the most important step is not necessarily access to credit, but it's the underlying problem is often savings. The reason why people end up in these often vicious cycles of debt is because people don't have savings, right? So naturally, in order to create financial health, you need to create savings for low and middle income workers to avoid going into these um, vicious cycles of debt. And, and so we, we, if we look at our product roadmap, there's very clear path to, for us in terms of creating the different pillars that, that we've identified to, to create financial wellness. Um, some of them I've already mentioned earlier. So, so that's really about um, us helping the employee think about um, how we can um, create this sustainability aspects to work creating financial wellness for low and middle income workers in Indonesia. Got it, got it. And this makes sense for those salaried workers, but what about gig workers that don't necessarily have an employer They're kind of working on a contract basis? Can earned wage access work for them or is that a totally different model? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it can definitely work for them as well. Um, again, it's ultimately it's an income smoothening solution. Um, the value proposition would have to be slightly different and, and the model would have to be tailored towards gig workers. Right now, we as a firm, we predominantly focus on um, salaried employees um, that are typically being employed by uh, manufacturing, production, consumer retail businesses um, that employ hundreds, if not thousands of employees uh, per, per business. Um, but there's also a very clear value proposition, not only for gig workers, but also for white collar workers, right? Because if you and I had the opportunity to access our salary instantly, um, it would make a lot more sense to access our salary for a small fee and then um, place our excess salary into a mutual fund product and um, basically gain additional interest income from it, right? Um, yeah. That would be the smart financial decision to make. Um, so there's also a value proposition for white collar workers or the white collar segment. Again, it would have to be a slightly different um, product. Um, but again, um, the, the co underlying concept of providing flexibility through an income streaming or through earned wage access is essentially the same across different categories and, and spectrums, whether that's gig workers, salaried blue collar workers, or even white collar workers. Yeah, that's incredible. The pillars of financial well-being that you mentioned really apply to all of those groups. And Absolutely. Yeah, and so that's great. It also sounds like you uh, might have read my thesis uh, because I talked about all of those categories. Um, I, actually, I actually haven't, but I would love to get a copy. I'll send it to you. Don't worry. I'll send it to you. So, you know, you've been expanding in Indonesia the last few months. You guys actually, you know, I, I remember you launched your partnership with Mercer in Indonesia a couple of months ago. You guys raised a six million funding round led by Integra Ventures. And thus far, your business has been really focused on Indonesia. And even when you were talking about the genesis of the business, it was really focused on, you know, the needs in Indonesia. Um, why did you decide to start in Indonesia? And do you continue on growing just in Indonesia? Do you want to continue expanding outside of Indonesia? What does that path for uh, Wagely look like? Yeah, for, for us right now, we're very focused on, on Indonesia. I think um, there's still a lot to be done in Indonesia. I think if we look at the overall economy, um, the size of the population, the people that we're serving today, we're, we're just scratching the surface really. Um, for us, what's really key is to win the enterprise category um, in Indonesia. So we're continuing to add more enterprises. Um, I think over the last um, couple of months, we have already shown that um, we're very strong in the enterprise category, um, working with a lot of listed businesses. So uh, we want to continue focusing on that and then expanding value proposition for, for employees as well as employers in Indonesia. So right now we want to stay very focused, um, hyper-focused strategy in terms of uh, winning Indonesia. And uh, I think that's really core for us in, in, in the coming months. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Indonesia it is. I think that this has been like a fascinating discussion on Wagely. I wanted to zoom out just a little bit and talk about some of the other alternative credit models in the region, right? We've talked about uh, many that you've experienced over the course of your career, especially in the region. You know, other, other types of con consumer credit are also seeing explosive growth. So I thought we would play a little game. I'm going to name a model of alternative credit 
And you're going to tell me if you think it's a viable model in Southeast Asia. Will it be viable? Will it be around in five years? Let's say. Do you, you ready? Okay. Can you play this game with me? Let's go. Okay. Um, Let's go. Okay. Number one, P2P lending. What's the viability of P2P lending? Um, I think very challenging for, for consumer credit um, because of the underlying credit risk and the ability to score people. Um, data availability, um, I think it's gotten a lot better over, over the last couple of years, but um, I'm, I'm a little bit more bullish on uh, the SME lending space um, across Southeast Asia. Um, I think we've also, if we look at the size of the P2P lending players across different categories, um, I think is, is probably the SME lending category that's, uh, that's still leading. Okay, fascinating. Okay, are you ready for the next one? Yeah, let's go. Okay, so let's talk about credit cards. Um, as I think we all know, Southeast Asia has extremely low credit card penetration. Most countries are, you know, five, 10% max. So what do you think about the viability of credit cards in the region? Um, I don't think it's viable for, for the, a larger part of the population. Because? So, so I think just elaborating on this, um, I think it's a it's a viable model for I guess the white collar um, sector, um, the people that have access to bank accounts, uh, people that have a certain level of income, um, level of spending power. But I think if we look at um, the majority of population in, in South Asia, um, I don't think it's a really viable model. Um, I may I may be wrong. Um, but I think in terms of um, alternative forms of credit, um, a lot more viable, easier to distribute, um, easier to reach as well. Um, even if we, if, if we just think about logistics, how do you supply credit cards to the larger population in Indonesia that is distributed across 11,000 islands in Indonesia? So the infrastructure is, is not there in, in terms of credit card, like the traditional physical credit cards. Um, so I think it, it needs to be amended in terms of um, using digital means, using mobile. Um, but again, I think if we look at the adoption of um, other alternative forms of credits, I think um, I've seen a lot more success in terms of growth, um, which I think is, uh, is then in return a more viable solution for because the larger part of the Southeast Asian population. Got it, got it, makes sense. Okay, last one, ready for the last one? I have to ask about buy now, pay later. Buy now, pay later has seen explosive, explosive growth in the region. Um, do you think it'll last or do you think it's just a fad? Um, no, I, I think it will definitely last. Um, I, I'm myself very bullish on uh, BNPL. Um, I think ultimately there's a lot of um, synergies between BNPL as well as um, the EWA model. Um, if we look at the underlying fundamentals, it's really to provide flexibility to consumers. Um, aside from, I guess, the forms of how it is being supplied um, to, to the consumers, but essentially BNPL is just offering, uh, offering consumers uh, flexibility in terms of payment terms. Um, what we are doing with EWA is also offering employees flexibility to access their salary. Um, and then I think the second key 
um, symmetry is that um, it's convenience, right? It's, it's very convenient to use BNPL. It's very convenient to use PWA as well. So I think um, BNPL has seen massive growth um, given the maturity of players in, in the space um, that have started a little bit earlier than um, either EWA players in, in across Southeast Asia. So I do think that um, BNPL is a very viable model um, in terms of providing that flexibility and um, strongly believe that EWA is to follow that same trend. Got it, got it. So Toby, those are all of the alternative credit models I had in mind. Thank you for playing along with me. And thank you for all of your insights today. I think that's, that's all the time we have. Uh, but thank you so much for being our guest. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've loved learning about earned wage access and Wagely. And thank you to the audience for joining us. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Amrita, for inviting me. Uh, it's Absolutely. been a pleasure being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Toby. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. You can also visit amritavir.com to get more information, join our mailing list, or just reach out to us. You can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com and follow our Instagram handle, greenroomfintech. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.